there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. What we kind of all had our eye on was like, how will this play into what ultimately happens? You know, you can delve into someone's mental health and their state of mind and everything, but you also have to make sure that it's not an excuse for taking other people's lives away and for committing something of this level of atrocity. Welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Bannock here with Butterfingers Alexis Linkletter herself and Billy Jensen. She is flinging all of her equipment around, you know, doing the damn thing. <sighs> Honestly, it's hard to be a person. It's hard to be alive. With hands, with it, like having motor skills and knowing where they're going and whether they're going to the right place. I mean, that is my um, futile battle. That mm-hmm. is. Billy... Um, it looks like yeah. your glasses are on very sideways. They're are on you sideways. Okay, Billy? Are yeah, you okay? Fine. Did you sit on those glasses? <laughs> you know what? I've probably sit on appro- approximately 75% of my glasses at some point. Because it yeah. looks a little crooked unless your ears are a little like crooked. they've been sat on. <laughs> Speaking of Billy's crooked glasses, we need to talk about our Patreon episode for this week because we came up with a genius idea called Truth Serum. And Billy is our first victim. <sighs> now, Lex, do you want to kind of describe what this is? Here's what's going to happen, everyone. We are going to get, we are going to make Billy drink before our session occurs. And we haven't decided whether or not this will be video. We probably could <laughs> do it on Zoom. But it will, at the very least, be an audio. But maybe video. Don't hold me to that. But we're going to try. Yeah, And we are going to collect the most invasive questions that you guys can come up with. And as he's sort of under truth serum, we're going to press him on the answers, whether it's personal, professional, whatever. And that's going to be the episode. It's going to be like killing time, but it's going to be like an AMA on Reddit mixed with... It's like AMA mixed with drunk history, I feel like is the vibe that we have gone for with truth serum. Yes. I I just want to say this. I left. We were all talking about what we're going to do next (laughs) week and everything like that. I left (laughs) to go out for... I, I will admit it was to go get a drink, but I came back in and then they they came up with this brilliant idea. He's and truth seruming himself in know, preparation. Billy, it's so on brand. But honestly, it's going to be an awesome opportunity to like delve into Billy as like how he got into this shit, 
what is weird little life looks like. Yes. Uh, what is creepy house up on a hill looks like. Mm-hmm. What he does with his spare time. I think everyone's I don't even know. Inquiring minds want to know. Yeah. And you know what? He'll be honest when he's drunk. Yes. Yes. And I'm on new meds too. So the, 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 the interactions go. could be. It could be even more truthful. And honestly, you can ask him about that because I think everyone should be open and honest about how they're coping with the fucking emotional perils of life. And I think you'll get an inside look at what Billy is doing. And I think I will tell you all about the meds. Can't wait. So this is you can listen to this now because it's our Patreon episode for this week. So I hope you enjoy it. And Billy, what day is it today? Well, today is April 27th and it's Babe Ruth Day. Love mm. Babe Ruth. If you ever watch Babe Ruth, what an athlete. But I know you guys don't want to talk about Babe Ruth. Is it the candy bar or the man? Because the be candy the bar I'll talk about all day. That'd be the mm. man. I wonder mm. if his family is getting residuals from that candy bar. They must. So. It's my least favorite cake that you would buy in a store. It's National Devil Dog Day. What the fuck is that? Everyone loves a devil dog. It's like a ding dong. It's like a, no, a no, devil no, no, dog. No, no. It's like a ding dong. It's like you. it looks like a hot dog. I know it, Billy. Yes. I'm from Long Island. It looks like a hot dog bun filled with cream. I think this is an East Coast thing. But a ding dong has a, a chocolate coating on it. The devil dog doesn't, which makes it incredibly dry. It's the most no, dry. No. The devil dog's delicious. I've had it. It's a hot dog with a chocolate bun and cream dog. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't like the sound it's, of this. Don't, Alexis you don't Linkletter, know it. Madison Avenue, copywriter. It's a hot dog with a chocolate bun. It's a hot bun. dog with a cream filling. A chocolate, <laughs> chocolate bun with a cream filling. It's fucking gross. But I had it as a child and I remember being like, that's the goal. You go get a devil dog. That's what you want. I do have a question for like West Coasters. Is this just an East Coast thing? I've never heard of a devil dog in my entire life. So I don't know if I'm just. I don't know what you're talking about. You didn't have Drake's. You didn't have Entenmann's. You didn't have. We had Entenmann's. But did you have Drake's coffee cake? I don't know what that is. See, it's East Coast because they had Drake's. uh, It was in Bronx Tale. Hostess. Yeah. Hostess. We don't need to go through every single one. This is too boring for our podcast. We can, uh, we'll talk about it in the Facebook group. Move on. Okay. Well, on that note, I believe that that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. In part one of this two-part series, we heard from our first degree, Eliana. The Toronto, Canada native shared what she witnessed while she was at work on the afternoon of April 23rd, 2018. She saw a brutal attack perpetrated against a swath of pedestrians below her building. What happened was a 25-year-old man drove his cargo van that he rented from Ryder down Young Street in Toronto and killed 10 innocent people. And he injured 16 more that were walking down the street on the first beautiful day of the year in Toronto. And one of the victims died three years after the attack, making the total number of murder victims 11. The man responsible for the attack, like all perpetrators, of course, has a name. But we've learned that part of the reason he committed this heinous act in the fucking first place was for attention and so that people would know his name. So we're spiteful. 
we'll be denying him that satisfaction of having his name repeated here over and over again today. So as we did in episode one, part one of the series, we're going to be referring to this desperate for attention murderer as John Doe, or, you know, John Johnny for short, but certainly not his real name. Nope. Following the attack, the people of Toronto were grieving and in shock, including our first degree, Eliana. It took some time for us to go back to work, and it it definitely took time for us to be comfortable, you know, taking our lunches outside again and, and walking between the two buildings without, you know, constantly looking over your shoulder and listening for, like, you know, screams or a horn or something that might warn you something is coming. So as the people of Toronto started going back to work, the realization of what had occurred and the breadth of this mass casualty incident started to sink in. The questions about the monster who was responsible were front and center. Who the fuck would do this and why? So last week we touched on what would later be revealed as the killer's motive. He claimed he committed this murderous rampage because he was an incel. And as a reminder, the term incel applies to a person, usually a man, who regards himself as being involuntary celibate and typically expresses extreme resentment and hostility towards those who are sexually active and those who deny him sex. Police learned all of this when he confessed to Detective Thomas on the day of the attack. John Doe said he planned everything for months in advance, never telling a single soul what happened. The killer went on to shed additional light on his plans. He said that after realizing a gun was just way too hard to find in Canada, he chose a van as his weapon. When he got to the Young Street and Finch Avenue intersection, he floored it, aiming the cars at pedestrians. He only stopped when a victim's coffee covered his windshield and he could no longer see. He had wanted the police to kill him, but they hadn't. So now he had to face the consequences of his actions. So you're probably wondering... How the fuck did John Doe become as messed up as he ultimately was and is? Where did his inexplicable hatred for women come from? And frankly, was this actually the true motivation behind his attacks? You get it. To answer these questions and more, you know the drill. We have to go back. So the following account has been pieced together from eight psych evaluations that were conducted on John Doe prior to his criminal proceedings, as well as court documents related to the case. Born on November 3rd, 1992, John Doe grew up in the greater Toronto area. His parents were college graduates who held steady jobs while raising John and his older brother. They were a quiet family, known to keep to themselves and avoid eye contact. As a baby, things with John seemed to be, you know, normal, for as normal as babies are. He was hitting all those textbook milestones. But then, according to John's parents, who spoke with psychiatrists to provide background information, out of nowhere, at 14 months old, that's a year and two months, for those who don't know math, (laughs) he started trying to hit his head on walls. And this was just the beginning of John exhibiting behavioral abnormalities. That's what they refer to them as in these court records. And it's for reasons we will discuss later. But imagine being John's mom. I'm sure this was shocking for a mother to observe. However, thankfully, he grew out of this inexplicable behavior. 
John then continued meeting developmental milestones. It was like they were in the clear. This was just like a blip on his weird developmental path. That was besides speech. He ultimately didn't speak until he was around three and a half years old, which is late. His parents, who were always attentive to his needs, took him to speech therapy, which proved to be very helpful. They tried to do everything they could when they noticed that he wasn't actually, you know, progressing the way his peers would have been. While attending Montessori preschool and kindergarten programs, John had to be closely monitored because he was known to escape from school. And this is for real escape. He actually physically ran away from the building and he didn't take the same path every time, which is super interesting. And this made finding him extremely difficult. John also needed one-on-one support with social interactions, and he had a difficult time interacting with other children and failed to meet the expectations for the class and social norms. However, there was never any hint of violent behavior toward others from John, and he was described as gentle and shy and never aggressive. But John exhibited some behaviors many could describe as odd. Because he didn't like holes in his bread, he would cut up his toast into small pieces so there were no more holes. Hey, but like, I get that. Like, we all have idiosyncrasies. Yeah. But we'll have to observe here, like, as we're watching his history unfold... Where does it go weird? Because we, we all have this shit. Because we all have this, right? Because it's like, imagine being John's parents. Like, I empathize with them. It's like, this seems weird. Like a 14-month-old baby who's banging his head against a wall. You don't think there's something truly wrong. You think this is like a, a tick or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. we'll have to try to observe as we see this unfold. Like, where the fuck is the real issue where someone should be alarmed and a red flag should go up? Well, here's one of the things. He had an aversion to reflective surfaces and a phobia of parallel mirrors. So he didn't like to see anything, any kind of reflections. And he also developed fixations on things. And they use this as an example. As a child, he fixated on Mr. Bean, if you remember Mr. Bean. Obviously, he had those platform shoes. Yes, he memorized whole routines that he performed for his family, which I don't think is that crazy either. I used to perform Joan Rivers routines for my family, so it's not that crazy. Joan Rivers. Then when he was older, his obsessions pivoted towards the video games he'd play. So because of these behavioral issues, John was referred to a hospital where after a series of assessments, he was diagnosed with pervasive developmental disorder, which is the equivalent to what we call like an autism spectrum disorder or ASD for short today. And I, I need to say this, like autism spectrum disorder is a fucking spectrum. You can have really severe severe symptoms where you, you're nonverbal or very mild symptoms where you can hardly notice like social interactions being, you know, impaired or, or whatnot. So I just want to give a caveat that like, when we say this, we all know this, there's a spectrum here. Okay. So not everybody's symptoms look the same. That being said, John's specific assessments showed that he had significant deficits in his ability to engage in social interactions. And reciprocal conversations, meaning like he didn't always respond appropriately to what people said to him, whether it be tonally or whatnot. He was often unable to interpret expressions on people's faces or the tone of their voice and had difficulty understanding people's emotions. So his responses were a big part of this disorder that he was experiencing. The assessments also showed that John had above-average intelligence. He was exceptionally good at science and math and was able to add three-digit numbers in his head while in kindergarten, which is something that I probably don't even know how to do now. Can't do double digits now, frankly. (laughs) No idea. 
So his verbal comprehension, perceptual reasoning, and working memory were all in the normal to high range. And his processing speed was slower, but still in the normal range. And as is often associated with ASD, he had some motor coordination issues, struggling with some fine motor skills like handwriting. He was awkward in his movements and not good at things that required coordination, like sports, for example. But overall, he was described as bright, just with some social difficulties. So he's fully capable of living a wonderful, normal life. He's not dealing with anything that should really hamper him from becoming a normal, productive member of society. When it came time for John to attend first grade, he was accepted into a specialized elementary program for children with ASD. And the goal was to provide him with intense, almost exclusively one-on-one support and assistance, which would eventually allow him to integrate into the mainstream educational system. And John was successful in this program. And by the end of elementary school, he was in the mainstream classroom full-time with special education assistance as needed. And this setup continued through high school. Right. And after graduating from high school in 2011, John was accepted into a computer security program at Seneca College in Toronto. He liked college and found that he fit in better socially with other students in his program, many of whom he described as quote unquote nerds. And I feel like this is very common after high school. People, high school is miserable for a lot of people. And once you have the opportunity to depart that miserable sort of. Yes. My God. Right. Yes. Absolutely. Well, you got to find your your people. You got to no, find I your found people. My people in college, absolutely. And I feel like a lot of people who were in a lot of pain in high school were liberated upon graduation because they had the opportunity to build their own lives, right? So we see this here. You know, he's saying he fit in better with people he described as quote unquote nerds. But at this point, he didn't actually fully immerse himself into the college lifestyle. He's still living at home. And if you're looking at him from, you know, a bird's eye view, he's actually yet to develop any close interpersonal relationships, no best friends who are dudes and no romantic partners up until this point. And, you know, he's getting up into college age, right? So we're expecting to see some at least like bonds, even if it's just friendships, right? And we haven't seen this yet here with him. So John maintained an A and B average at university, but during his final year, he failed two of his non-computer related classes. But even with the two F's on his record, he still managed to get a job through Seneca College's work placement program while he continued pursuing his degree. But after six months at the job, John was fired for playing video games and surfing the internet while on the clock. And when asked why he was doing this, John said that he was entertaining himself because he got bored after finishing his work. So clearly work is not challenging him, and he found some tasks to be effortless and some to be excruciatingly hard. Yeah, and after getting fired, 24-year-old John surprised everyone when he made a decision that nobody saw. Nobody expected this. He enlisted in the Canadian military in August of 2017. His parents, his brother, knew nothing of these plans. It was completely out of character for him to do something like that. And especially on top of, you know, all of his social challenges. You know, enlisting in the military means no personal space, no tolerance for any personal or individual idiosyncrasies. There's a pecking order. You do what your superior says when they say it, no exceptions. So his parents were perplexed by John's decision to enlist and had no idea he had a desire to do any of this. But John's military career didn't last long. It was a blip. It turns out that John was a below average recruit. He was unable to adjust to military life, which wasn't really surprising. After 16 years of basic training, 
John requested a voluntary discharge, which was granted on October 25th. He left before he was trained in weapons, and the military didn't flag anything out of the ordinary. After he was discharged, John Doe, he went back to college to complete the two classes he'd failed. He wanted to get back on track, allegedly, and he he wanted to graduate with his degree like he originally planned. So when he was through with those classes, he accepted a job with a reputable company, and he was doing software development with a decent salary, entry level. So interestingly, on the day before the attack, John completed the final paper he needed to complete his degree. On the day of the attack, he filled out employee forms at his new job. And he'd scheduled it to be that way, apparently. And it's very perplexing because it's like, if you had this plan for weeks prior to that, what was the point of bringing these two things to the finish line? Why submit this paper to complete your degree? And why fill out the forms when you'd already rented the truck. Right. Like I, I do things from a psychological perspective. Like that's something interesting to dissect because it's like, what for the papers? Very odd. So it's like, I, you had a degree. I, I can't actually get my head around it because I don't see the sense in it. So that was obviously a lot of information, but none of this is explaining why John Doe decided to forego the salaried job in favor of committing the worst mass killing in Canada since 1989. And the truth is, there are multiple reasons why. So we're going to begin with the obvious starting point, what he told investigators after he drove his rental van into a crowd of people. During his interview with Detective Rob Thomas is where John, 25 years old, confessed that he was an incel. The judge in John Doe's case defines incel as, quote, a group of disaffected young men who hang out on fringe websites such as 4chan and feel aggrieved that women will not have sex with them because they prefer other obnoxious males. John Doe defines an incel as someone who is forced into staying a virgin. But let's be clear, being a virgin or not having sex is totally fine. There's a lot of pressure on men to do so. That's not what an incel is. The incel movement takes that and moves it into an incredibly dangerous space. An incel is someone who blames women and blame society for the reason why they can't have sex. And they develop hateful attitudes and rhetoric around those thoughts. And then, as we've seen, sometimes that rhetoric turns into horrific action. Right. And according to the Anti-Defamation League, the term, quote, incel has been around since 1993, which is a shock to me. I thought it was a brand new term. Yeah. So ironically, though, the term didn't always have the meaning it has today. A Canadian woman which is really ironic given this case, created the word as a way to label her single status. It was probably like a tongue-in-cheek reference. Like, I'm an involuntary celebrant. I'm an incel. Like, you can see how the innocent connotation began. And she also coined this term as a way to connect with other similarly lonely people. But as we know, given the context of the last two episodes we've done, including this one, Today, the word means something completely different. So incels are now pretty much men. We don't see women incels, at least in the buzzwordy context we're referring to it as now. It's about how women have too much power in the sexual romantic sphere and how we essentially ruin incels' lives by denying them sex. So incels now a word we associate with violence and homicidal rage because men kill over it. Incels have become so dangerous that law enforcement now pays close attention to them. 
In the last six years alone, at least 47 people have been murdered by an incel in North America. In 2020 alone, North American authorities arrested five incels for killing or plotting to kill women. And side note, that number is low because like we said, law enforcement has only recently started paying attention and collecting concrete data on this group. And that being said, there's a lot of people who are incels who don't even know this word exists, but they fucking hate women and they kill us. So this statistic's literally just associated with people who use that word. Most of his victims were female. I have no idea if that has to do with how many people were out on the sidewalk that day or, you know, who was around and convenient. So it's kind of hard to know exactly how he targeted people. It definitely is less surprising to think that women would be the target. Eliana, you're right. It is less surprising to think that women would be the target of any intentional act of violence. We're on the receiving end of violence in many of these true crime stories. And we're really tired of it, by the way. That's pretty standard, unfortunately. I think women are always on higher alert and always kind of prepared for something bad to happen for no other reason than because we're women. It's not a day where, you know, you would be conscious of, you know, not having your headphones in and being aware of your surroundings and, you know, remembering to keep an eye out. Okay, so back to John Doe and what he was telling detectives. So he told Detective Thomas that he actually really wanted to be with a woman, but he couldn't because they always rejected him. Right. And this made him apparently very angry. And he gave an example of a specific incident at a Halloween party in 2013 where he tried to talk to some girls. This is a fucking direct quote. They laughed at him and hung onto the arms of big guys. So I feel like a lot of this shit's probably in his head, too, because that's not how women... Be- they don't... That sounds like it's coming from, like, a 90s, like... Yes. Uh, like, she's all ugly that or duckling. something. Like oh, my God. Yeah. I was going to say Ugly Duckling movie. It's like, oh, they pointed and laughed at me, and they hung in the arms of big guys. Like, that's not what we do. Love the creativity. I, honestly... And it's a, it's creative and cliche at the same time. But anyways, he said that once he discovered sites like 4chan and realized there was this incel community, he came to understand that there were like-minded men around the world who felt just like him. Men who were angry about women not having sex with them. And that's when John claimed, at least in his interrogation, that he embraced the incel, quote, movement. John and others like him looked at 4chan as a place to discuss how they would overthrow the Chads. So the Stacys would be forced to sleep with the only people left, which is the incels. And if the Stacys didn't want to be with the incels, then they could go away too. It didn't matter who died as long as incels were the ones left standing. Okay, so what the fuck is a Chad and a Stacy? So according to the Anti-Defamation League, a Chad refers to a white straight male with Aryan features and other, quote, desirable physical traits. Incels believe that all women inherently desire Chads because women only seek out men who are of a higher status than them. Again, love for you to reduce us to this bullshit. To like fucking clout chasing, money chasing, gene chasing. Like it's it's all this really gross shit. It's it's so stupid. So embarrassing. They reject all other men, aka non-chads, who that they feel are undesirable. And then a Stacy is a beautiful, promiscuous woman who can entice any man that she chooses, but 
She's only interested in Chad's. Right. And I don't have it in front of me, so forgive me, but I know they have other names for people like on tiers lower than a Chad and Stacey. Like they've, in this community, they've also reduced people based on their appearance. They do all sorts of shit like this. But our John Doe is telling this poor detective all this shit. And he's probably like, what the fuck are you talking about? And John continued to talk. And he said his biggest inspiration for this attack with this van that he had done was the incel responsible for the Isla Vista murder spree. So some of you may know about this, but we don't want to give this guy any undue attention either. So we're going to refer to him as Evan Roberts, which isn't his real name because, but fuck these people, you know, like no more fucking SEO accessibility. Yeah. So on May 23rd, 2014, a 22-year-old Evan Roberts stabbed three men to death in his apartment. Then he uploaded a manifesto on YouTube where he detailed his plans to kill women for rejecting him and kill men because he envied them. So he was going after the Stacys and the Chads. Three hours later, he drove to sorority house and he tried to get in. When he was unsuccessful, he shot three women outside, killing two. And by the way, Ala Vista, this is um, in Santa Barbara. You know, Santa Barbara. It's just like right right above Los Angeles. Yeah. Next, he drove past a deli and he shot a man inside the deli. Then he drove through Isla Vista shooting pedestrians from his car and he struck some with his car as well. After the police caught up with him, they exchanged gunfire. Evan crashed his car and then he shot himself in the head. And when all was said and done, he had killed six people and injured 14. John bragged that Evan even successfully started a, quote, beta uprising against the Chads and the Stacys after his attack in 2014 that brought a lot of attention to this incel movement. It was the uprising that made John start to feel radicalized. From that point on, he spent a lot of time thinking about what he could do to be more like Evan, how he could take action instead of wallowing in his own feelings about women not wanting to have sex with him. John said that earlier he became so involved in the movement that he was actually in contact with Evan from January in 2014 up until May when Evan embarked on his spree. Right. And it appears that Evan actually did bring a lot of attention to this incel movement. And the Anti-Defamation League states that Evan's attack is really America's most infamous incel-driven killing spree. And numerous incels have named him as the reason behind their own violent attacks or violence in general. In fact, there's even a term for doing just that. It's called going ER or ER. I don't know. I'm not going to Google it to give that any clout to the SEO world. But it means to commit a mass murder after being inspired by Evan. Oh, that makes me so sick. So for example, someone online might say, I'm going to pull an ER one of these days. Jesus. Yeah. And it really was like a lot the mainstream media, a lot of people on the internet knew what an incel was. You know, it took, unfortunately, it took a mass shooting for th- this all to come out. Anyways, back to John and this pathetic plan. He tells Detective Thomas that around a month before the attack, he decided it was his time to take it upon himself and stand up to the Chads and Stacys like Evan had. So he books a reservation for the rider van to use, quote, as a tool for rebellion and started planning his attack. Now, the one thing that stuck out in my mind with this is that it's not sure if he chose a rider truck for his tool for rebellion, because as far as rebellion goes, that's the same truck that Timothy McVeigh used for the Oklahoma City bombing. 
a rider truck. Either way, he used a freaking rider truck. He doesn't tell anybody about what he's doing. The only thing he did was he made two posts online. Now, the first post came the day before the attack when he posted anonymously on 4chan that the beta uprising was starting, encouraging others to follow suit. And lots of users commented, showing their support for John Doe. The second post came on the day of the attack. So during the last episode, we talked briefly about how after striking all 26 people on Young Street, John turned onto a side street where he continued driving around until he was pulled over and ultimately arrested. What we didn't tell you was that right after he struck his final victims and that he turned onto that side street, he promptly published a fucking post on Facebook that he'd prepared in advance. He prepared it in advance meticulously. So anyway, it read, quote, Private Recruit Doe Infantry 00010, wishing to speak to Sergeant 4chan, please. The incel rebellion has already begun, exclamation point. We will overthrow all the Chads and Stacy's exclamation point. All hail the Supreme Gentleman, close parentheses, Evan Roberts, exclamation point. This is so fucking insane. (laughs) It's so ick. I'm like, how do I even punctuate this properly? It's the most lame shit I've ever seen in my life. So I'm just going to make this clear. He took the time out of this mass murder attack on the people of Toronto just to post this embarrassing, pathetic call to arms on his Facebook. It's truly astounding and fucking disgusting and more pathetic than, you know, you could really even write in some work of fiction. Like he's the lowest scum loser. At the end of the interview, after John was done detailing this utterly misguided motive, Detective Thomas asked him how he felt about the fact that 10 people had died. I mean, let's get beyond the fact that, you know, we're talking about like the the the, the ridiculous things that he's talking about with this manifesto and this hero worship and, and the incel and the Chads and Stacey's. How did you feel about 10 people that died and 16 people that were seriously injured? And he says in a matter of fact tone of voice, I feel like I accomplished my mission. Fuck this guy. Dude, fuck this guy. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop, or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways, and with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences, and before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. 
Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. As we know, John Doe committed a brutal attack. He killed several people. He injured many more. And he blamed all this shit on women. He's a fucking incel. So we just want to reset by saying the petulance and audacity of this guy who blames every problem he had on women, it's it's mind-blowing. When the details of John's interview were made public, our first-degree Eliana was surprised to hear that an incel was in Canada, of all places. It just felt like something that was not here, you know? Like, it, it's such an extreme way of thinking that it felt, you know, like something that happens other places. And, and you know, maybe this was kind of naive, but, like... We hear, obviously, in Canada, like, about all the gun violence and school shootings and things that go on in the U.S. And I think, like, that's where we hear incels thrown around. That's where we hear that kind of, like, concept. But in Canada, again, and and, and maybe I'm naive, but it definitely doesn't happen as much here. So it doesn't feel like a thing that's, again, like, on your radar. You know, somebody that could, you know, that could become dangerous very quickly. Like, you don't think about that person being, you know, like, local. But was John really an incel? Is anyone really an incel? I mean, it's a relatively recent term, right? After all, that's what he said he was, so case closed, right? Well, it's a bit more complex than that. John Doe had never actually met or spoken to Evan Roberts, the man he said was responsible for his radicalization. And he also, I believe, claimed to have corresponded with Evan Roberts, yeah. right? But yeah. 
He was um, assessed by several psychiatrists prior to his proceedings, and one doctor found that John's, quote, professed identification with the Ensel motivation was not real. And according to all eight psychiatrists who assessed John Doe, and according to the judge, there were multiple pieces of evidence that pointed to this conclusion. So first off, when John's father watched the interview of his state of his son's statements to Detective Thomas, he commented that John was using the tone of voice and demeanor that he would use when doing a presentation as if he was acting. Beyond that, John Doe was matter-of-fact and emotionless and used higher-than-average eye contact. He only perked up when he was asked if he had the opportunity. Would he see what people would have written about him? And that's when he showed a lot of response to these questions. He was excited by that notion. Unlike most incels and mass murderers, psychiatrists found that John didn't blame others for his problems. Instead, he saw himself as being a failure because of his own shortcomings. He saw himself as being unable to accomplish things, and he believed that he would fail at his job before he had even started said job. And finally, and this is, remember, based on the doctors, John's feelings and thoughts about women were noticeably different than your typical incels. He enjoyed reading negative, hate-filled comments about women online, but said he wasn't full of anger and rage toward them. In fact, there was a, quote, complete absence of those feelings. John didn't hate women. He was just, quote, annoyed at them. All the language he'd used to describe his feelings about Chad's and Stacy's had come from all of these posts that he'd read online. And he hadn't even really had any bad experiences with women. Remember the story he told about the Halloween party in 2013, where all the women were hanging on the arms of the big guys and they had turned him down? Well, it turns out that was a complete lie. He had stolen every detail straight from Evan Roberts' manifesto. Right. And there's a couple of things I actually want to say, because if you did your own research into this case, you'd, you'd understand that initially this guy, quote, seemed like an incel. And then it, it, it turns out he was just pretending to be. And I just, I just, I fucking disagree because he's not like a typical incel, but the inception of this incel movement is very fucking new. And I don't know how these experts can determine that this particular incel doesn't align with other incels. It's yeah. actually kind of weird. Even if he doesn't know what the fuck he's saying, he's emulating incels and in, in, in mirroring their hatred of women so like fuck he's just seems like he's like a psychopath he's that even, is even like, worse than an incel he's yeah. like i don't actually hate women but i'm copying what these incels are doing you can use a john wilkes booth quote and you know and still be somebody that is an assassin and then and then wants to overthrow the, and bring back the south but yeah you know that's still what you want to do so then a lot of these what these doctors are saying saying he's not an incel oh it doesn't align with the other really incels yeah. it just feels like they're like complicating it a little bit too much yeah it's fucking new like that's the thing it's a 2013 phenomenon right it's like Oh, okay. He's not as vicious and disgusting as the other incels, but he's emulating them even though he doesn't hate women. So are we really going to say he's not an incel? Like, I'm sorry. If, if, if latching onto the hatred of women is like a narrative that seems the easiest to you, I'm sorry. You're fucking incel too. Yeah. You're fu- yeah. okay. We'll call him incel light. Like, is that better? Like, I don't fucking know. But regardless, if he's lying about being an incel, 
to get attention. It's even worse. And he's a fucking narcissist who who's like leaning on the violence against women in order to get infamy, which is why we're not buying into this shit. So anyways, it's why it gets murky. It's because like he's a, he's a crossover between a narcissist and a fucking incel. And also he's just kind of fucked up as a person. So who knows where this really comes from, frankly. As it kind of came out, learned was that this guy really just wanted to make a name for himself. It seems like he was really just, he just wanted to be famous in the worst way possible. He wanted his name to be known. He wanted to be, you know, infamous uh, for this thing. Calling himself an incel, identifying like his act as, you know, part of that. It was almost like a way to get even more intention. Like that was kind of the flashiest thing that he could say that would really draw people in to his case and what he'd done. Eliana's totally right. John wanted something flashy, something to draw people in to make people want to know more. There's so many mass murders that the average person sees a story about one and moves along without checking things out further because we're so fucking desensitized to them. And that is terrifying, to be honest. There's a mass murder almost every single day in the United States alone, and the average person just can't keep up with all that tragic loss of life. It would be too depressing. It is. So John knew that if he wanted attention, he needed to do something to set himself apart from others. And what's better than adopting an ideology focused on hating and channeling hatred and violence towards women? This is something to even get the most desensitized people to click on a story about them. And that's apparently where being an incel came into play for John Doe. He knew incel was a buzzword. And including it in a headline about a mass murderer is more than enough to get someone to read the story. And the more people reading the story means the more people paying attention, which means more people will know his name, which is exactly what John Doe wanted. Right. And all this info begs the question, if John wasn't 100% incel, even though he's mostly incel, why did he choose such a horrible act of violence as a way to achieve fame or rather infamy? So to answer that question, you know the fucking drill. Back we go. In school, John only had one friend, and he was frequently bullied, so this left him feeling really down about himself and his life. His response was behave in a goofy way, such as using a high-pitched silly voice or laughing along with the bullies as they bullied him. And sometimes he would act out this way even when there wasn't a bully around, just to get attention from his classmates. He preferred to receive negative attention rather than no attention at all, which is interesting. Starting around the year 2008, when he was in high school, he began fantasizing about bringing a gun to school and shooting people he didn't like, while attempting to avoid the ones that he did like. Right, and eventually John's interest became more than just a fantasy. He started researching school shootings and mass murders online, memorizing manifestos and stats. As he went off to college, John's interest in mass murders waned. But soon, he became overcome with loneliness as he watched his classmates, who he viewed as his nerds, like him, interact normally with each other. So he started to feel more socially isolated than ever. According to a court document, his level of intelligence permitted him to understand that he was different and what his social limitations were. He said he never expected to have a spouse or a family, and this left him without any hope for his future. And at the same time, John felt it was inevitable 
that he would fail at his new job, the one he accepted during his last semester of school. He'd failed at his last job, so why wouldn't he fail now? John started a spiral, as we all fucking do, believing that he'd, quote, rot into obscurity as a failure. I mean, join the club, but without ever accomplishing a single significant thing in his life. He started to fantasize about killing people, and that's where things get really scary. But at this point, he became fixated. And uh, at this time, he decided to act on these fixations. While researching recent mass murders, John discovered Evan Roberts, the killer who allegedly brought on the supposed incel uprising in 2014. And John really did idolize Evan, but not for the reason that he told Detective Thomas. The truth was that he felt more connected to the mass murder aspect of Evan's attack rather than this whole incel part of it. And this was because he wanted to be a famous mass murderer like Evan, and he decided to use the incel material to, quote, rev himself up and to get into Evan's mindset. Again, I actually don't believe this. Uh, People want to argue that he's not actually an incel, but it's like if you emulate him, if you emulate Evan Roberts, again, not his real name, the people who who know this Isla Vista attack, we're not saying his real name, but if you emulate and you're trying to fucking do everything this guy does, like, I'm sorry, but the incel ideology resonates with you. And I'm not buying the fact that he's not really an incel. Yeah. To, to pick that one. I mean, listen, there's, there's so many mass murderers out there and, and, it almost makes sense, but I, but and I never you, you don't want to second guess you know a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist Certainly. or whatever. But it's almost like, you know what? Yeah, you could say that, but come on. By December of 2017, John Doe was completely fixated on Evan. He was reading and thinking about him daily. He continued fantasizing about killing people, especially the way Evan had done. Remember, Evan had a knife, he had a gun, and he had a vehicle. But the fantasies weren't enough. John had to do something to change his fate. He had to do something that would make people remember him. Because becoming famous, even for negative reasons for him, was better than rotting in obscurity. Right. So around a month before the attack, John decided it was time for him to get his name out there. He was going to kill people for real instead of just in his fantasies. And he wanted to emulate Evan. But getting a gun, as we've said, was really hard in Canada. Good for you fucking Canada, by the way. So he's like, I gotta find a a vehicle to be my weapon. Next, John came up with a list of goals that would bring him the most attention possible. Kill 100 people. This would be a world record. Try to kill as many women between the ages of 18 and 30 as possible to make his incel motive more believable. Post on Facebook during the attack so attention would be turned to him directly and quickly. John felt the post needed to include these keywords, 4chan, incel, and Evan Roberts. Why? Because 4chan gives him, quote, that identity. Incel indicates that he's complaining about virginity and Evan Roberts because using his name would boost John's fame. The last thing John planned to do to gain notoriety was to die by suicide by cop. He saw this as a way of becoming a martyr and getting more attention. John told the experts who evaluated him that in the end, He didn't achieve all of his goals, but he still felt like the attack was, quote, worth it. Although he wished he killed more people, he was satisfied with a kill count of 10, and he was excited that when people go on Google, his name will come up and they will see what he did.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. When John Doe first met with Detective Thomas, he said his entire motive behind this attack was the insult movement. But that was a quote-unquote lie. And again, I don't buy this, but this is what the research says. John's quote-unquote real motive was attention, notoriety, and fame. Apparently, he used the word incel to make the media pay more attention to him. He didn't really hate women. Yes, he fucking did. But he also hated obscurity, and he was willing to kill to avoid it. When all this information about John's fake motive came out, our first-degree Eliana was horrified to find out that John committed the attack for fame. I think people wanted it to be something that they could at least label or understand the narrative for because it sort of just helps to make sense of something like that. I think in some ways it almost makes it easier to understand if he's an incel because, you know, at least then he's going after one group of people for one perceived reason, no matter how insane it is. So it's pretty crazy to process that, like, you know, the actual reason would really just be that this guy wanted to kill and create chaos. Once John was through with all of his evaluations, he was ruled competent to stand trial where he faced 10 counts of murder and 16 counts of attempted murder. He pleaded not guilty, which many felt was unbelievable considering the lengthy confession he gave to Detective Thomas. But John Doe's defense wasn't that he didn't commit the murders. It was that he was not criminally responsible or NCR. There was a lot of debate. A lot of the conversation in the reporting was around his mental capacity. What we kind of all had our eye on was like, how will this play into what ultimately happens? You know, you can delve into someone's mental health and their state of mind and everything, but you also have to make sure that it's not an excuse for, you know, taking other people's lives away and for committing something of this level of atrocities. From November 10th through December 18th, 2020, John Doe's trial was conducted over Zoom due to COVID. We were all there. His defense had motioned to have the trial moved to a different venue, but the judge ruled that no matter where John was tried in Canada, people would know the story. So in response, John chose to have a bench trial, which meant there'd be no jury, only Judge Anne Malloy would decide his fate. After hearing all the evidence from November to December, Judge Malloy took until March to make her decision regarding John's guilt. The first thing she had to do was determine if ASD was a mental disorder under the eyes of Canadian law. And she went through many sources, and she determined that the answer was yes. 
In her landmark decision, Malloy wrote, this merely opens the door. It means that people with ASD are eligible to be considered for a possible defense under this section in the same manner as people with many other kinds of disabilities. So once Judge Molloy ruled ASD did in fact fall under a mental disorder, quote unquote, she moved on to the question of, does John's ASD make him incapable of knowing that his actions were morally wrong? But the answer ultimately was no. Having ASD did not take away his ability to know the difference between right and wrong. And not only did John know his decision was morally wrong, it was actually a fundamental part of his reason for committing the crimes. He knew people would think he was a monster and that his actions were reprehensible. But that was the whole point. John wanted people to think about him. He didn't care what people thought about him just as long as they thought about him. It was very clear that he was planned out and thought out and intentional in his actions and in kind of picking this as the method to do it. So I think, you know, mental illness or not, when you have that clear lead up when you have like kind of that clear indication that there's forethought, you know, to me that there's no way to not be not malicious. As of this recording, John Doe has not been sentenced because the court is waiting on a decision from the Supreme Court of Canada about serving murder sentences consecutively instead of concurrently. Mass acts of violence are kind of commonplace here in the U.S., which is disgusting and sad and deplorable on its own. But every study shows that the ease of getting a gun is a major contributor and reason as to why these are so pervasive here. But that's not actually the case in Canada. So we asked Eliana about her take on all of this. You know, it's different than gun violence in the sense that there's not like, you know, there's not like gun control measures that can come from it or some debate that sparked about, you know, how you can prevent this kind of stuff. They would put out like these big blocks around a lot of the sidewalks. And you see it now in downtown Toronto and in the area where this happens a lot. But they kind of have these big cement barriers around sidewalks and crosswalks to prevent vans or, you know, any vehicle really from coming up onto the sidewalk. And I think a lot of that, you know, happened as a result of this. I think that was kind of, you know, the reaction. We can't prevent something like this. We can't anticipate something like this. So how do we, you know, what's something that we can put in place to make people feel better, I guess. Needless to say, the city of Toronto will never be the same again. Because of John Doe, citizens won't be able to cross the street or grab a sandwich or a coffee without looking over their shoulder. And they won't be able to drive down Young Street without having flashbacks about the carnage and chaos that John caused. It it definitely (laughs) took a long time until people, you know, felt safe walking outside. And it's it's one thing at night, you know, I think many of us are are trained like at night, you know, don't walk with your headphones in, pay attention to your surroundings. I know as a woman, I'm like constantly like looking around and behind me and like, you know, being <laughs> on edge if I'm out alone at night. But like it was broad daylight in the middle of the afternoon with hundreds and hundreds of people around. Right. So it's not you're not prepared for that. So one thing we want to say is that in talking to Eliana, I noticed that when I asked her questions, she always prefaced or gave me a caveat in her response. She always diminished her experience in saying that others suffered worse than her. She felt bad about feeling a little traumatized or a little fear. She didn't want to complain considering what others had been through. You know, the people who lost their lives, the people who were injured and their family members. But 
it was really endearing to not have someone make it about them. It was really humble. But what I had to say, and what I will say to all of you, is that it's valid to have residual fear. It's valid that you see something and it's painful and it messes you up. It's it's valid. It's scary. Um, and we support you in that. And that's what this podcast is all about. It's why we're here. You know, Jack and I both had these scary experiences we were connected to when we felt really shook by it. And we're like, well, let's find a place to talk about it. And Eliana is a perfect example of the kind of person who's like, this rattled me and we're, we're here for it. And, you know, that being said, it's like, we're all just doing our best. And if, if it sincerely affected you, anything you may have witnessed, I mean, speak up, you got to talk about it. All right. Well, a huge thank you to Eliana for being our first degree for the past two episodes. If you're listening and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram. You know, all of our handles, uh, join our Facebook group. We are talking true crime all the time. Follow us on TikTok to see Billy's videos go viral, but not ours and join our Patreon. We have so much fun bonus content for you there. Join us on our Patreon to see Billy drunkenly tell his truth which no one knows. <laughs> and remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But not that close. <laughs> I don't know why I thought Billy was going to say We're literally that. all a disaster tonight, but I promise our Patreon's worth it. Bye. Happy baby birthday. Shout out to Jared Monica for scoring original music for this first degree. Uh, shout out to Caitlin Cleveland, our producer, writing by Haley Gray. Sources for this episode are court documents, the BBC, the Taiwan News, National Post, Toronto Star, CBC, The Guardian, USA Today, Times Colonist, The Glove, and The Mail, CNN, The Conversation, CTV, The Canadian Press, and as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source. Bye. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com/podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com/podcasts to access your special offer today.